Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, we have today the pleasure of um, speaking to Professor Diane Coyle, who's the head of Bennett Institute of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. And we're going to be talking with her about her, her latest book, which is Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be, and How Economics Needs to Change to Keep Pace with the 21st Century and the Digital Economy. Uh, Diane is also an, a director of the Productivity Institute, a fellow of the Office of National Statistics, an expert advisor of the National Infrastructure Commission, and a senior independent member of the ESRC Council. She has served in public service roles, including vice chairman of the BBC Trust, a member of the Competition Commission, of the Migration Advisory Committee, of the uh, Natural Capital Committee. Diane was professor of economics at the University of Manchester until, Man- until March 2018 and was awarded a CBE for her contributions to the public understanding of, of economics in the 2018 honors list. Diane, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure. In the book, at the start, you, you tell a little bit about how you became an academic and you basically start this when, when you go to um, study your PhD in the US. But could you give us a little bit more of background of how you became an academic and uh, how the, so we can then move to talk about how the book came about? The short answer is that I've done everything I've done by accident. And um, the, the, the only deliberate decision I made in my life was to apply to Oxford because my brothers and my sister, my older siblings had applied. And I think we were a very unusual family because we came from a very working class background in the north of England, a cotton town, and all four of us went to Oxford and three of us got PhDs. Um, So they had beaten the path initially. And I chose PPE because I wanted to be a philosopher. I, I fancied sitting in a pavement cafe in Paris, writing books of philosophy. But when I got there, I had a, just a brilliant tutor, Peter Sinclair, who sadly died of COVID in early 2020. And um, he converted me to, to being an economist. He was such such a brilliant teacher, so engaged with interesting questions about the world. And because, like many people, I didn't really know what to do after university, I applied to go to Harvard and got a scholarship to go and do my PhD there. But subsequently, I've done pretty much everything you can do as an economist. I've worked in the treasury, worked in the private sector, uh, been an economic journalist, and finally ended up as an academic when Manchester approached me a few years after the financial crisis because they wanted somebody who'd got policy experience to teach economics to um, undergraduates, did undergraduate teaching there. And, And similarly, having a background in the world of policy as well as having the PhD in, and the Manchester experience um, meant that Cambridge invited me to apply for the role I have now as co-director of a, a relatively new public policy institute. And um, so that's part of the joy of economics. You can apply it in different contexts, but also um, 
just really underlines my own interest and experience of doing things in in different ways, addressing problems from different perspectives and getting different perspectives on research questions now. So my research now is always informed by talking to practitioners, whether it's in policy or in business. Thank you very much for that. Um, You've you've mentioned Peter Sinclair. The book is dedicated to him. Could you tell us a little bit more about him to those who are not aware of his work and, and the person? Peter was a devoted teacher. He spent far too much time, far more time than was rational on his students. And if you showed any interest in economics, he would lavish time and attention on you. I had one-to-one tutorials over breakfast weekly in the covered market in Oxford because he was so responsive to signs of interest. And he was a a marvellous theoretical economist, macroeconomist himself um, and international trade. And um, at the same time, he was incredibly interested in the way the world works. That made the tutorials massively interesting. They were always full of nuggets, for example, that at the time the butter mountain of the EU weighed more than the population of Austria. And um, he would direct the tools that we were learning, the technical tools, towards questions that that mattered. And and then he stayed in touch with his students uh, for as long as they wanted to. So I talked to him frequently um, right up to his death. I saw him a few weeks before he died. He would read things. He would write references for people. Um, absolutely wonderful, kind, generous, and and brilliant man. So I was unbelievably lucky to land with him at Brazenose College. Uh, indeed, he he sounds that way, and it's indeed uh, sad that that he's passed away pro- probably earlier than um, would have been expected. So let let's move then on to the book and tell us a little bit how how it came about because you've you've written i mean it's not your first book you've written a, a number of, of other books um that give this um different take on topics that people take for granted for example um gdp a history where where you're talking about you know we're measuring an idea Rather than something that is concrete, but but not not getting too much away from the from the topic, um, the first part starts with a number of lectures that you gave. Uh, so how how does this uh, evolve? The uh, Cox and Monsters is, is really the evolution of my thinking about what we're doing as economists, and the idea to do the book was crystallised by my previous book, and that's the trouble with writing books. Once you've done one you realise what you don't know and you have to do another one. And the previous book um, was a textbook, essentially, um, Economics Public Policy, uh, based on the course I uh, created in Manchester and and taught there. And it really set me thinking about what we think we're doing when we do policy analysis as economists. And if you think the idea of policy interventions is to make things better, what does making things better mean? How do we think about that? And how do we as economists stand in relation to the democratic process and what politicians are doing? And so I brought together some earlier lectures um, dating back to 2012 when the financial crisis actually triggered a first round of thinking about what economists were doing. And many of us had a period of introspection after the financial crisis. Um, and and it, it traces 
some issues that I think are um, worth economists pondering when we think about our influence in the world, but also the rebellion, if you like, um, the populist reaction against elitism, against technocrats. And we are the, the key technocrats, incredibly influential in government. You know, we've got a government economic service, but there's no government sociology service or anthropology service. So why is it that um, economics has this privileged role in public life? And uh, do we deserve it? And what should we be doing to do our job better? There, thank you. There, there is, uh, we can discuss later, or there used to be a, a social science uh, office at Intel, which was populated and governed by Intel, which has you probably are aware, although that is not something that every company has, it's more common to find chief economists in, in some banks and, and so on. But well, interestingly, um, the big tech companies are appointing a much wider range of social scientists from anthropology and psychology and so on. Yes, as a way to better understand and not be so much guided by engineers. So it's this is the same kind of thinking that you're leading to, where that probably there needs to be a wider remit of social sciences and not being so reliant on economists in government. Yes, absolutely. Um, partly because we have become very narrow in a way in economics. And this is one of the threads that runs through the book. And if you think about the kinds of techniques that get your papers published in economics journals or the kinds of questions that economics journals are interested in, it's, it's a narrow range And I started doing more work using surveys and qualitative methods. And you get many economists who would say, but we need some hard data. Uh, we need some empirical work, to which the answer is, well, I have a lot of data. Texts have megabytes of data if you've conducted good semi-structured interviews and done the methodology carefully. Um, this is just as much data as yours is. And it gives you a different perspective on the kinds of questions that you're addressing with your quantitative methods. I'm very skeptical about the ability to identify um, models based just on correlations in data, unless you bring some information from outside that must come from a different kind of approach, you know, be it economic history, informing macroeconomic identification, or um, something from anthropology or sociology informing identification at a more micro level. Because it's there implicitly anyway. If you leave some variables out of the equations that you are uh, running regressions on, then you've got some implicit theory and some implicit identification already happening. And that should be made much more explicit. But nonetheless, I mean, I, I can see that this is um, as a critique from within. And, and you mentioned the, the, the populist critique of uh, macroeconomics and of uh, neoliberal economics in, in, in particular, um, which um, I don't agree because now neoliberalism is kind of like an etiquette to be something that you don't like and whatever it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's there. It's not. Abuse, not a serious analytical concept. Exactly. And, and uh, which, however, in, in, in some parts, Um, has raised to the public, um, you know, to the very high end of the of the discussion, and it's the case here in Mexico, where um, the current president has done all of these things of destroying um, institutions and trying to recreate a number of things with with taking neo uh, neoliberalism and neoliberal economics as a 
as a straw man. But um, nonetheless, this being a, a critique from 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 within, which has had echoes as as the book has been nominated as as one of the top books for 2021 for the Financial Times. Um, nonetheless, is is touching on two very important issues. One, which is more conceptual, which is how do we create science and how do we recognize that something that is created within within economics is valid for the rest of the profession and and that's that's where you want i think go with your argument but the other which is a more practical one is how do people get a job and promotion within that job and and, and that you know they are going hand in hand to what you are saying um, just just now yes so uh, as you say there are these two threads and starting with the pragmatic one we're we're a social science we're analyzing society and yet we know that it's one of the most um, unrepresentative academic disciplines I, I, I know the data for the US and the UK not for Mexico um, but I'm sure that it's um, clustered with many of the disciplines that are very male-dominated. And, you know, a lot of disciplines have these skews, but we are alongside engineering and computer science and um, uh, philosophy departments in being very male-dominated. So there's a sort of mode of thought that's particularly privileged. But more than that, you don't even know what questions you might ask if you don't know, if you've got not enough people with different kinds of life experiences. In the United States, for instance, this is emerging now in the debate about um, the representation of African-Americans in economics and um, whether the discipline has ignored or even um, misrepresented some aspects of American economic history as a result. So that, that strikes me as being really very important. We, we are, um, to this point about narrowing, we don't know that what, what we don't know. Are, are we missing important questions because the discipline is very unrepresentative? And the pipeline in departments is such that uh, more women, more people of colour drop out at every stage. So there's something that's dysfunctional in that structure. Uh, the more conceptual point is that um, it, the economics that we, we do and gets favoured in top departments was created in the 1930s at a time when positivism was the dominant philosophy. And we have very strongly bought into this idea that we are a practical subject dealing with empirical facts, like engineers, dentists, plumbers. These are the kinds of metaphors that leading economists reach for to describe what we're doing. And, um, and I think that's very misleading because the analysis that we do depends on the concept of efficiency that isn't at all like engineering efficiency or plumbing efficiency. It's Pareto efficiency, and it's actually an ethical standard. It says... You can't claim um, a gain in efficiency unless you have not made anybody else anybody worse off. That never happens in real life. Public policy always involves trade-offs and conflicts. And yet here we are in the fundamentals of economic theory, ruling out the ability to talk about distribution in our criterion for improvement, and also claiming that we are doing just um, positive, objective analysis. And I think um, that's part of the reason that many people consider 
uh, you know, so disdainful about economics because they can see very clearly that many claims in economics do have normative implications. It's not just positive. And so it's been quite damaging to carry on insisting that. We need to find a way to be as objective as possible, to be as impartial as possible, but at the same time to recognise that there is uh, an ethical dimension to this. And and that is one of the ideas that you bring out on, on the book, which is how can you be objective if you're part of that reality and you're part of that society? And, and you have to realize that and, and make that that assumption open on 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 the one hand. And and the other idea that you're touching on that you 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 uh, synthesize probably in saying, well, there is no you know every decision is is public policy. It it, it is going to be a, imply a trade off. And there's going to be politics around it. Exactly. So if, you, if you're saying, oh, um, we've got this fantastic policy, it will make things better if only the politicians would implement it, then there's something wrong with your analysis because you haven't incorporated all the relevant uh, world, all the relevant variables in your model. And, and there, there was a comment in, in, in passing probably with, with um, at least... With, with the way that, that the advisory board around um, the pandemic was set up, which was primarily populated by um, epidemiologists. And there were very few, you know, I, I, there was none to my knowledge, any uh, health economists or, or any other economists, not because they have to be economists, just, just because we're talking about people from a certain profession that have a high ranking order in, in trying to advise and say, well, okay, these are going to be the policy implications of what you're saying with 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 this model, no? In in terms of of, of uh, however the pandemic was going to run out, so this compartmentalization or this putting people into boxes according to their um, skills, this breaking up, and it, it's also probably. Um, a legacy of this positivist, um, or certainly this analytical way of doing things, in in trying to break things into parts, and there is very little effort in trying to make things and and try to see them as a as a whole, more holistically, more systematic. And that was one of the arguments that that the late um, Russell Aikoff did in trying to 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 deal with business problems and and. Sorry. I'm, I'm agreeing with you vigorously. I mean, it's not just a problem in economics. It's common to lots of university disciplines that um, all the reward structures have people uh, focusing in, getting narrower. And you need some people who um, roam across disciplines and can integrate different ways of thinking, different models, different kinds of data. And um, that's very hard to do in the system that we have now. And, and it's not at all... Um, favoured in economics, which re- refers out to other disciplines less than other so- social sciences do. Exactly. So, coming back to the going back to the book, um, what was the more challenging part to write? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I suppose the th- things I found hardest to express were the um, couple of chapters towards the end about what might a different benchmark for economics look like, because I don't have that clear in my head yet. And the argument I'm making there is that we start out with the assumptions underlying the general equilibrium theory and welfare theorems. And um, we know that they are only starting points. They're they're not valid empirically, but it's constant returns to scale, perfect competition, perfect and uh, complete markets, um, 
you know, um, no externalities or, or non-rivalry. And, and then we're in the habit of relaxing those one by one to diagnose particular problems where policy intervention might be needed. And that is a benchmark that might have been good enough once upon a time, but really isn't now. If you take increasing returns, there have always been industries that have very large returns to scale, autos, aerospace, and so on. But now that's pretty much the majority of the economy. So we need to start from a benchmark of increasing returns to scale. Similarly, in digital, there are all kinds of externalities and non-rivalries. That needs to be the benchmark. How we do that is something I'm uh, not clear about, and that will probably be the book that gets triggered by the one that I just completed. Um, and um, you know, but 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 we're starting from the wrong place, and we've still got this uh, bias towards individualism, uh, strong bias towards thinking that preferences are fixed when that clearly um, doesn't work either in terms of digital markets or, or behavioural economics. So that that was the hardest, and I'm sure readers will be able to spot that. Um, I, I raise more questions than I'm able to answer in, right at the end of the book. Exactly, and 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 it was fascinating. Uh, you know, you you've been talking about um, whether the the discipline is um, fitted to deal with, particularly the digital economy and, and 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 the rise of these very large diversified firms, which which uh, whereas one part of the economy are. are Divesting intensely and trying to focus, um, the, the the large technology players are becoming the the, the big diversified firms of, of old. Where, as you just mentioned, there are important ethical issues, and and I'm here. I'm thinking as an example, the the, the debate in the last um, few weeks, maybe uh, around um, uh, Joe Rogan in and Spotify. And, and and Spotify taking a, a step back and trying to become a platform and having a different business model and that's how they become successful in the in the in the music business. Uh, but then they diversified into into um, podcast and they are poised with a similar question that other large platforms have been, with, which is well they're being very successful in in disseminating and, and bringing a number of people together on on both sides of the platform, but then. You have the problem of misinformation, or however you want to call it, which is a value judgment. And how do you deal with it? Um, Twitter uh, pushed uh, Trump out after some 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 pressure, but Spotify has preferred to keep the um, Joe Rogan, Rogan, sorry, uh, and and lose a um, a big artist. I don't, I don't know if it's a, a major artist for them. Uh, but clearly, then the, the ethical aspects of, of these decisions are, are not only in the public space, but also in the private space. And even if you're not in the business that's making the decision, think about being um, in a competition authority and you're trying to do the analysis about the impact on consumer welfare of something going ahead or abuse of dominance. Um, what do you need to put into your calculation? Do you need to take account of misinformation uh, going viral on online platforms? Is that something that should be included in your welfare calculus? So I think it's posing, that the way the economy has changed is posing some very difficult questions for everybody from financial regulators to competition authorities to 
investors in these big platforms. And and yet, from for for the reasons that we were talking about earlier, it's it's hard to see where the incentives for the profession would come to change track. And and you know, in perhaps in a way, you you have what uh, some economics economists called a path dependence. That is that you're put into certain direction and incentives to move out of that, uh, to explain it in, in, in some way, not exactly path dependence, but to move out of, of, of that trajectory are very hard. And well, that's it's, what it's equilibrium. And um, you've got to get lots of things to change at the same time to switch out of it. I think what young people want to do will drive some change. And um, they will increasingly go for... I don't know, computational social science departments or um, politics departments rather than economics if, if the economists stay as narrow as, as they are. Universities will also have to um, change if they're going to stay relevant and retain their role as important civic institutions. We've seen in lots of countries that people who don't have a degree are voting against people who do have a degree. So the institutions that give degrees should be really worried about this long term and reroute themselves in their communities. And and yet, uh, I'm not sure the, the numbers in the US, but certainly in the UK, a large numbers of universities have lost their economics degrees and lost, you know, the, the, the lost their economics departments and merging them with, with business schools and just having them as, as, as a second, what, what in the US would call, would be called a minor, like, you know, in the background. And, and increasingly, the education of, of full-fledged economies becomes very elitist, as, as only the, the top universities are able to, to support those degrees. I suppose um, I think there are two ways into that problem. Um, one is what you teach first-year undergraduates or people who are doing it as a minor. And I was very involved in the establishing the core economy open curriculum, which is exactly addressing that problem of how do you make first-year economics relevant to the world's big problems and keep students enthused at the same time as giving them the technical tools that they're going to need. And that's become uh, increasingly successful, very much in the UK, starting to make headway, even in the United States, where breaking into the market with a different curriculum is is much harder. And then the other bit, so I I don't think it's bad doing economics as minor because it was only half of my degree and, you know, I turned out to be an okay economist. So then the other bit is what do, what do PhD programs do? And um, that's that's harder. So I think that's the danger that you raised exactly in your question. And um, I, I'm less sure about how to tackle that. But I think funders can help. And the doctoral training programs achieve some breadth. Um, and the funders could make um, the PhD studentships that they offer um, more contingent on a broader curriculum, perhaps, or at least open up that discussion. So I, I, I don't have a quick fix for it. I think it is a system problem, um, but I would go into it in those those two areas. Thank you very much. Well, I think you've you've told us a little bit of what the, the next book is might 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 be coming out of this one. But is that really what you're uh, working on these days, or what is the next project? I'm working on two kinds of things. One is still digital markets and thinking about. Um, competition and practically how should policy change and um, understanding aspects of the, the economy like data. The other is is uh, economic measurement, which I've been doing for some 
I don't know, uh, eight, nine years now. And um, the more I think about it, the more I think it raises really important conceptual questions that I'm mulling over. I mean, the basic problem is that we spend several hours a day online. Um, it's completely transformed our personal lives. It's completely transforming business models and disrupting industries. Um, yet it's almost impossible in the statistics we have to track what's happening in terms of di the digital economy. Um, and that is everything from how sectors get classified to data access and collection. You know, how, how much are people using cloud providers? We don't know. What are the prices they charge? We don't know. It's, you know, I've constructed an index, but it's not a regular statistic. But then you start to think about, well, what is the value of data? Uh, we want to put it in the national accounts as an intangible asset, but the same data can have such different values depending on how it's used, who can access it. It's highly heterogeneous and context-dependent. And it's got all the challenges of valuing intangible assets anyway, like what are their depreciation rates? And um, how do we take account of the fact that the value can go from very high to zero overnight because the company's reputation is torpedoed by something? And that there are some very meaty conceptual problems that I'm just trying to, at the moment, um, organise in my mind so that I know what specific questions I need to go after in the statistical research and then think about how does that come together in a book about what's the lens or the set of lenses through which we should be trying to understand what's going on in the economy. Thank you very much. I'm sure it would make a fascinating read and hope to have you back and New Books Network when, when it's out. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Diane. And well, if you have not yet become a subscriber, please subscribe to our podcast. And if you are a subscriber, please rank us or leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much again, Diane Cole, for, for me being with us. And until next time.